0: Good to be with you guys, good to be back. It was fun last week to be with Gathering Place and be on the lawn. It's good to be back, and we are picking up where we left off in our study of 1 Timothy, Paul's first letter to Timothy. So if you haven't already, let me invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 5. As you guys are opening your Bibles and flipping it there, wanted to thank Crossroads and, and Pastor Rob, thank you guys so much for coming up. You can smell the sweet smell of texture. And the sanctuary, much better than mold. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man, it's so, so much better in here. Thank you guys so much for your hard work. They've been working like crazy on the building. Yesterday, we volunteered at the Waterland Parade. I uh, got to meet some, some key leaders in Des Moines. didn't expect that, but uh, it was really, really cool. Rob is a pastor that mentored me while I was working with him as associate and youth pastor back in 2012. Whoa, 10 years ago. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Man, feels like it was just a little bit ago. Uh, Rob continues to, to mentor me. Crossroads, the church that he pastors, has been a supporter of us since the beginning, since we started in 2016. So you guys, thank you so much for your support. You send mission teams out to, in the summers to help us. Uh, you guys are a blessing to us. I also wanted to give it a shout out to... Uh, the great Carrie Jester is back in the house. We have Minister of Signs, also known as Deke, in the house. Carrie was uh, in Texas the last five and a half weeks caring for his, his, his dad, his mom, in Texas. Carrie, it's so great to have you back with us. We missed you, man. Stephanie did a great job filling in your shoes, greeting people with smiles and, and her hospitality. Wow, also good to have Jesse Marissa Nelson back, and new baby Isla. Congratulations, guys. Great to have you with us. Um, There's one announcement, too, that I have, is I think we'll have lunch after the worship gathering at Mandarin Kitchen, Um, so if you'd like to join us for lunch with the mission team, you can eat with us. Also, Ben and Megan Swarner have opened up their house and have invited anyone who wants to come to their house for dinner uh, to join them, so... Maybe there might be swimming involved, there might be funs and games, whatever. whatever Ben has planned for us, I know it'll be great. Uh, it would be good, it's a little last minute, but if you know that you can make it now, you can just raise your hand up, sweet, and if you would like to make it later, just let Ben know so they can prepare food. Yeah, mission team, you guys will be there, so, <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's turn our attention to 1 Timothy. We have been studying 1 Timothy throughout the summer, looking at this first letter of Paul to Timothy, he was a young pastor, a, a kind of a son in the faith to Timothy, a young pastor that he had been mentoring, and, and Paul was writing this letter to Timothy to give him instructions for the church, for the household of God, how they should behave and conduct one another. So he started talking about the importance of the gospel. The church should not move on from the gospel. The central message of the church is Christ Jesus came to earth, to the world, to save sinners. Amen? And we are those sinners that have been saved by Jesus. So therefore, Jesus has come to the world to save sinners, and and Paul writes, then pray for all people, because God desires that all people be saved and, and meet this Jesus, that this Jesus came to be the Savior of all people, so pray for all people. And then Paul gives instructions on the kind of leaders that are to be in the church. He lists out qualifications for leaders. And there's two offices of church leadership, elders, overseers, right? Bishops. Remember this is a term that I like. Bishop. Call me bishop, that'd be awesome. Bishop, overseer, or the modern term for that might be pastor, elder, and deacons. And these were the the leaders of the church and those qualifications for what kinds of people are to be examples in the church, are to be example of servants and what kind of people are to be teaching the word of God to the household of God each week. And and then Paul wrote that he is to discipline himself for godliness. He says physical training is is some value or value for a little while, but godliness is a value in every way. So discipline yourself for godliness, train yourself to be godly. And in chapter 5, we're going to see kind of instructions for three groups of people. He's going to give instructions on the church body as a whole, how, how they are to relate to one another, but he's also giving instructions on how to care for widows, how to care and honor for widows. He's going to give instructions on how to honor elders, and then he's going to give instructions to bond servants. So that's, that's what we're looking at, these instructions to these specific groups. So 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 1, first two verses are kind of addressed to Timothy, but I think the principles apply to the whole church, he says, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as he would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. All right, so Paul is instructing Timothy, this young pastor, on how he is to relate to other members of the church body. Those who are older than him who are male, those who are older than him who are female, and those who are, you know, his age or younger, male and female. And this is to be the kind of posture, the kind of manners, the kind of way that they're to behave and relate to one another. Right? It can be a little intimidating when you go over to someone's house for the first time and you don't quite know the customs of the house. Is this a house where the shoes are on or off? Is this a house where you're kind of met with a, what's up, dude? Or a huge hug? What, how is the, how do the parents relate to the kids when, if there's kids involved and and they're present, how do the kids relate to the parents? (laughs) Are they rowdy and rebuctions? Are they calm and collected? But there's all these kinds of customs on how are people to behave in in a household. And a lot of that is cultural, how we were raised. But Paul is saying in the church, there's a certain way that, that people are to approach and to, and to relate to one another. And that is primarily to be about honor and respect. That's how we're to relate to one another. So don't rebuke an older man doesn't mean never correct older guys. <laughs> like older guys just get a pass, man. They can do whatever they want, right? Anyone older can't say anything to them. No, it's it's the way in which you were to approach them. So if there was going to be a word of correction, it would be like talking with a father. Talking with someone that is worthy of honor. And as Paul's saying this, you know, treat older men as fathers. Some of this, sometimes we can, it can be hard for us to relate to this if we came from a family where (laughs) we wouldn't want to relate to older men like we would relate to our father because our father was absent or he was abusive or he was not a good father. But Paul has in mind here the the vision and the wisdom set forth in the scriptures for how families are how to, to treat one another. So fathers are to be gentle, loving servants of the home. They're not to be harsh with their kids. They're not to be harsh with their wives. Wives are to be respectful in following their husband's leadership. It doesn't mean that they're dormant. It doesn't mean that they're dominant. They're complementing their husband's leadership. Children are to be respectful and honoring to their parents. This is the kind of vision that the scriptures have laid forth. So Paul's saying this vision, not the vision that might be distorted that we have gotten, right? This vision is how we're, the church is to relate to one another. Paul is telling Timothy there's a certain manner in which you are to relate to those in the church. There's to be a a respect, a care, a attention, an intention. And the attitude of a church leader towards a church member should not primarily be, I don't think, of rebuke. It should not be one of chastisement, condemnation. It should be one of encouragement. So the, the, the pastor, the church leaders are to come alongside the church and encourage them, edify them, build them up. Those who are older don't view their age as a platform for being condescending. And those who are younger don't view their youth as a, well, I'm going to tell those old people there's honor and respect given. It's a ministry of encouragement, of exhortation, of of a call to continue in faith and trust. I like the way this guy named Douglas Moon notes on this verse. In particular, when when it involves women, older women and younger women, he says, like men, women are members of God's household with claims on their pastor's attention Care and instruction. Timothy should not ignore, patronize, or exploit them. I love how Paul writes there that the, the call is to, in all purity. And it got me thinking I wonder how many scandals would be avoided, how many pastors would, 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 <laughs> would benefit in the scandals that come out, in the abuse of women, in affairs with women, exploiting women, if they viewed women in the church as sisters. What if we really had that view? So Paul's now going to turn his attention. He's talking about kind of Timothy and how he relates to the whole group to three different groups. And there might have been problems in these groups, which is why Paul was given these specific instructions in Ephesus. But he's going to talk to widows, elders, and slaves. He's going to address these three groups. So he starts with with widows. And it's important to kind of have a somewhat of a background to the Old Testament teaching on the care for widows. God's people were to care for widows. God's people in the Old Testament, in the law, were instructed to care for those in their midst who who didn't have others to care for them, the fatherless and the widows. This was a refrain repeated throughout the prophets. As God's people had missed the mark, they had failed in their obedience to the law, the prophets again and again called the people to act justly, to treat each other rightly, to not show partiality, to care for those who are defenseless in their midst. So Let me just read you some of what the the big prophets and even minor prophets write about this. Isaiah chapter one, learn to do what is good. Pursue justice, correct the oppressor, defend the rights of the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Isaiah, Jeremiah. Administer justice and righteousness. Rescue the victim of robbery from his oppressor. Don't exploit or brutalize the resident alien, the fatherless or the widow, orphans and widows, right? Zechariah, show faithful love and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the resident alien or the poor, and do not plot in your heart evil against one another. Malachi. He's pronouncing judgment because the people of Israel fail to do this. He says, I will come to you in judgment and I will be ready to witness against sorcerers and adulterers, right? Right there, we'd say, oh, yeah, clear sin. Sorcery, (laughs) wow, wicked, right? Stay away. Adulterers, those who swear falsely, then listen to this, those who oppress the hired worker, the widow and the fatherless, and against those who deny justice to the resident alien. Those are the Old Testament backdrop. You come to the New Testament in Acts, and deacons were set up to care for the widows, the church had a ministry to widows, and Jesus' half brother James writes this: James one twenty seven, religion that is pure and true faith, right devotion to God, that's pure and undefiled before God is this: to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So, what does true faith look like? This kind of ministry this kind of care for those in the community. Widows in this time were even more especially vulnerable, right? And they didn't have social security, didn't have government programs. So widows who didn't have family, didn't have those to care for them, were reliant upon others. And the church was to come alongside them and, and to care for them and to support them. So Paul's going to give some instructions on how widows are to be cared for. It says in verse 3, "'Honor widows who are truly widows.'" Right there, I was thinking, truly widows, isn't it kind of like being pregnant? Like, you either are pregnant or you're not. Can you be like a (laughs) half-widow? You wish your husband was dead, right? (laughs) He's he's going to qualify what he means by that, true widows. He's going to say, it's about taking care of widows, those who don't have anyone else to care for her. That's what Paul is saying is true widows, those who are really in need, genuinely in need. They don't have anyone else to care for them. He says in verse 4, but if a widow has children or grandchildren let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents for this is pleasing to the Lord. So Paul's saying if, if the widow has children or grandchildren, let them meaning those children, or those grandchildren learn to practice godliness. We've talked about this before. It's like godliness is to start in the home, the place where you're, you're real kind of true itself, right? You can put on a, you can put on a smile, you can look good and, and show up on Sunday, but like, People who live with you really know who you are, right? Amen? Yes, we know this. It says the godliness is supposed to start in the home, so if, there's, if a widow has children or grandchildren, they are to care for this widow. This is how they're to put into practice their faith, and this pleases the Lord. The first responsibility for them to show godliness is at home, to take care of their parents. And Paul writes, this pleases God. And I believe this is something that our brother, Carry Jester, demonstrated these last five weeks. He demonstrated that while his dad was sick, he took care of his mom and he was by his dad's side. And I believe this pleased God. Carry, thank you for your example to us. Those who have family are to be cared for by their biological family. This is the point. And the church is to care for those widows who don't have biological family. So verse five says that she is truly a widow. He says, left all alone. Doesn't have any biological family, but not just anyone. It's a believing, faithful widow. She set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. This is verse 6. Something that in our culture of we value self-expression, self-realization. Very offensive. Short little phrase. (laughs) It just cracks me up looking at it. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. She's not really living. It's kind of like a zombie going about her day, undead. There's no, there's no life there. Unfortunately, many of those uh, who aren't familiar with the teaching of Christianity, what Christians really believe, as I've had conversations with others, they think that sin is primarily about doing wrong things. That's the essence of sin. Bad behavior. So separation from God is for the immoral in the sense of behavior, how they behaved. Badness is thought of primarily by actions, morality. But Jesus goes deeper than just actions, than just behavior. He talks about the heart and selfishness. From the first time I heard a pastor describe sin as self centeredness, I thought, wow, I'm a lot more sinful than I think I am. Wow. You just define sin based on you swear, you lie. You have angry thoughts. Okay, I, I see that. But self-centeredness? Whoa. Maybe it's just me. But I'm thinking, man, I'm, I need help. I need the grace of God. This is what he's talking about, self-indulgence, self-centeredness. This, is, this I think, is the essence of sin. I heard a pastor once say, uh, relativists, the irreligious, they secular people, they don't co- confess of any sins at all. Religious people, moralistic people, they confess of their sins. But gospel-centered people, Christian people, they confess of their sins and their self-righteousness. The bad things they do and the bad ways they do good things. <laughs> the lot. They confess of their self-centeredness. And Paul's saying here, the, the way of life, it's, he's echoing the teaching of the Bible, the way of life and flourishing and joy and peace is not self-centeredness. As Tim Keller wrote in a book, it's self-forgetfulness. It's self-giving. It's other-oriented. Think about the joyful people that you know in your life. Are they self-centered? Think about the the grumpy, unhappy people in your life. There's a common denominator in this, I think. The way of death is the path of indulgence. That's what what Paul's writing in Timothy. Timothy kind of just like an offhanded comment but so good those widows who indulge themselves in luxury who live for pleasure in the present they're dead already even while they live right, continues in verse 7 command and teach these things so that, that they may be without reproach if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his own household he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever and Paul's getting at the fact here that even outside of the church families care for each other if there's a loss in the family so if godliness isn't in the home and the children and grandchildren aren't caring for the widow, <laughs> it's like they're worse than unbeliever. But let a, let a widow be enrolled, verse 9, if she's not less than 60 years of age, has been the wife of husband, husband, having a reputation for good work, she's brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. Wash the feet of the saints. You picture a culture in that time that was, I mean, sandals, mandals, it was just a thing. Everyone wore them. Feet were dusty, the roads were dusty and dirty. So washing feet was, as a, as a phrase showing great self-sacrifice. Jesus said, as I have washed your feet, so you wash the feet of others. You give yourself in service to others. So this is a woman who has demonstrated the, the fact of her faith in Christ. It's played out in the way that she's lived. It's almost kind of like similar qualifications that, that Paul had given to Timothy for elders, he's kind of giving to those who should care for the church, those who are going to be supported by the church, cared for by the church. It says in verse 11, but refuse to enroll younger widows. For when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but gossips and busybodies. I don't think this is kind of like a promise, like <laughs> this is inevitably was going to happen, but it seems like Paul maybe has witnessed this happen. I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already stayed straight after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. In my study this week, there's some speculation on what exactly does it mean to walk away and incur condemnation and uh, abandon their former faith. And, and some speculated that to be, to be kind of enlisted on this list of widows that were cared for by the church, you kind of almost had to take a vow of celibacy. So you would break your vow if you desired to, if younger desire to get married and, uh, you know, go back on your word, essentially. To be put on the list might have involved a pledge to go alongside of being enrolled to receive this kind of ongoing support. And Paul also might have in mind that he's seen younger widows be tempted to marry unbelieving husbands and so lead them away from faith and and the church, and this would be a grave, grave outcome. So, everyone relate to each other as family instructions for how the church is to care for widows. The church is to care for widows, but there's certain widows that the church is to prioritize and others in the church who have widows in their family are to care for them. And then he's going to move to elders, right? Widows, now elders. Verse 17, "'Let the elders who rule well "'be considered worthy of double honor, "'especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. "'For the scripture says, "'You shall not muzzle an ox "'when it shreds out the grain "'and the laborer deserves his wages.'" Don't think Paul is just comparing elders and preachers to ox, <laughs> to be funny. He's using this, these, two, these two phrases here, are quotes. The one from, about the ox is from Deuteronomy 25. And the point, I think, is is regards to financial provision. But throughout church history, the church has understood this to mean that, that those who labor as elders, especially in preaching and teaching, are to be supported by the church, cared for by the church, provided by the church. But double honor in the sense of there's already honor in the sense of being an elder, but double honor in the sense of financial provision attached to that for those who preach and and teach. But don't don't muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain and saying don't don't prevent an ox from eating while it's working. If you prevent an ox from eating while it's working, it's it's eating the grain that it's you know grinding in a sense, you're gonna stop it from being able to do its work. So pastors are are and, or to take their time to devote to the, the ministry of the word, preaching and teaching. So to not provide financially for a pastor would be to, to limit his time on how he can do the, the labor of ministry of the word. Does that make sense? So it seems also that Paul might be referring to two different kinds of elders, right? those who, who rule and govern and oversee and shepherd the flock, and those who rule in the kind of ministry of preaching and teaching. So in the Presbyterian church, they, they differentiate this between teaching and ruling elders. So ruling elders are those elders who are appointed in the church to shepherd and care for the church, but there are teaching elders, those who are paid by the church, who are alongside the, the ruling elders, and they have a different role. Does that make sense? And I think I had some confusion on, on this, this idea before. I, I thought that all elders were equal in value and role and worth, and they had equal decision making, and they had the same roles. But it seems to be that there's a difference here, as is what Paul is saying, that there were some elders among the elder team that devoted themselves to preaching and teaching. So in the future of our church, as we appoint elders, there will still, there will be a difference in role. Does that make sense? So let's say Bob is appointed to be elder of the mountain church and Bob works as a garbage man. Bob's not going to necessarily quit his job in, in the trash service to be an elder, because, Lord willing, the church will be able to financially support the teaching elder, the pastor, which happens to be me, to continue that work. Lord willing, we might grow and, and pay other pastors who might labor in this teaching and preaching, but that's, does that make sense? As I was fleshing this out, it seems like there's, you know, there's even among the shared team aspect of eldership, there's, there's little different roles. I think I missed that before, and it created some confusion and, and hurt and problems. Right. I got way off my notes. Okay, and then the most common language I think used now is, is churches just have pastor. What that, a lot of times what that means, I would say this is the, pa- the pastor is this elder who rules in this way, the, past, the elder who's worthy of double honor. So Rob is worthy of double honor, right? Yes. Maybe triple honor. Okay, so honoring elders, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching, looks like providing for them financially, but it also looks like being careful in the kind of charges that come against them. So it says in verse 19 do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, I've heard this verse used by elders in a very abusive way to say, if anyone is rubbed the wrong way by them individually, it's dismissed if it's not two or three more people. And that's, I don't think that's, that's the heart of what Paul is getting at here in this verse. It's not about, you know, if someone has a bad interaction or a miscommunication or they see a genuine character flaw, that anyone can be kind of written off unless two people see that. <laughs> I think the mark of a true elder is that if there is a mistake... A missing of the mark, a bad interaction, something rubs you the wrong way. There is a miscommunication. Something, something soured ha- happened. That that elder would have the kind of reputation and trust among his people that people would willingly and lovingly want to come to him. They know that he wants to be corrected. He wants to know what are ways in which I, I might, I might be missing something. I might have, I might have made an off comment to someone that. That hurt them. I want to know that so that we can be in right relationship. Right, that's the mark of a true elder, I think. Not just dismiss anything that, oh, three people didn't see it. So silence you. Go away. Not, that's not the heart here. Testimony, though, in the Old Testament was there was, a, there was a process of testimony, and it involved multiple witnesses. So I think Paul is very much continuing that line from the Old Testament that if an elder is to be removed, condemned, there should be multiple witnesses to that. This is, the, this is a role and title and office that's to be honored. It's to be worthy of respect. So there should be some care and wisdom into, into the discernment of those charges that are brought against them. Make sense? You guys still with me? Then he says, for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. So elders who sin which this seems like it could have been a problem in Ephesus, these elders were to be rebuked in the presence of all. So that other elders, those in the church, were to be oh, (laughs) godliness is something to be taken seriously. And these kind of elders, if they're continuing in sin, are to be publicly rebuked, publicly corrected. This is the kind of, the, the weight and the influence that a leader has is so important that they are to be rebuked publicly. Should safeguard others. There should be a kind of fear, I think, that comes in serving in a leadership capacity for this reason. Verse 21: In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, right? Angels are keeping us account. I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. So don't be quick. In appointing elders. They must be tested. That's what laying on of hands means. That's a church lays hands on a leader. They're saying, we all recognize that this person has been given this gift. They have this heart. They have this shepherding care for this church. We recognize that, and, and the hands are laid on. Paul said, don't be too hasty with that. Let them prove themselves. See what kind of character they have. See what kind of behavior they have. Right, so elders are not to be condemned, charged with insufficient evidence, but they're also not to be given free cards to get out of any kind of correction. Then Paul seems to give very practical advice to his son in the faith. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Paul might say no longer because this might have been some influence from these false teachers who are saying, to be godly, godliness looks like avoiding certain things. Not necessarily about relationship with Jesus. It's about what you do or don't do, a kind of a moralistic, legalistic sense. Says no longer. Then I say, well, to really be godly, you got to avoid any kind of wine. It's only water. We have, and we make up. We're so good at making up these kind of rules, aren't we? To really be godly, your dress can only come up two inches off the ground. Right? To really be godly, you can't blink. We, we make these lists. I like the way R.C. Sproul said it. He said, Paul recognizes the medicinal value of wine. Believers are free to make use of ordinary means in caring for themselves. It is no mark of faith to reject the advice of doctors or to forego medical treatment. Yes. Amen. It says, The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. And this this seems like it ties back to his point about don't, being, don't be hasty. Because with the point that Paul is making here is the works that someone does eventually are going to be found out. It's going to come to light. <laughs> you do bad works, that's going to come to light. And the stuff that doesn't come to light, it's going it's to be judged. So there's, there's everything wrong, gonna be, there's going to be justice one day. Even the stuff that's hidden. But he says also good works are conspicuous. And even those cannot remain hidden in the same way good works are obvious. Those obvious works cannot remain hidden is what Paul is saying. So the fruit of someone's faith will eventually be worked out in the way that they live. You will truly know someone's faith by the way that they behave themselves, the conduct over time, the works that they do. You'll see this. It will be obvious. So don't be hasty with appointing other elders. So hanging out with, with my friend this week, a former, uh, he was a former, him and his family were formerly part of our church family, Peter Sachin, and we were talking about church leadership and elders, and Peter made this comment that, that really s- struck me. I appreciated it. He said, I don't want to be given a title until people are following me. We were talking about, you know, aspirations for leadership and elders, and since you said, I don't want to be put in a position of leadership until I'm functioning as a leader, so instead of maybe saying, well, who's the most committed to everything in the church, right? Who has the most passion? Who sings the loudest? Who knows their Bible the best, right? All these kinds of things, instead of saying, or who's willing, right? Man, was just, who's willing in the church? Oh, we need an elder, we need an elder. Oh, here, someone said they would do it. It's, it knows more so who already is shepherding and loving people in the church body. And the church is going to recognize those men who are shepherding and pastoring people and saying, yeah, that, that guy is an elder, and they lay hands on him. That's what I would like to do going forward. We don't necessarily need more elders. We don't need more deacons in the sense of <laughs> there's hundreds of people and, and the needs are too vast, right? I would love to have more elders in the life of our church. I would love for God to raise up people in this church that have a heart to shepherd and care and pray for this congregation. But I do not want to be hasty about it. And I want the people to recognize who the elders are in this church body before they're given a title. Amen? That's my heart. You guys have a different view? I'd love to have a conversation about that, but that's, that's where I'm thinking right now. And I'm getting a nod from Carrie, one of our deacons, and Phil, so it seems like maybe on the right track. <laughs> Don't be hasty in laying on of hands. So he's given instructions for honoring and caring for widows, elders, now we move to bondservants. Let all who are under a yoke of bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers, rather they must use they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. I think these instructions, these principles here apply to the workplace for us. They don't necessarily have a bond servant system. So Paul is calling those, we might say us, those who are in the workforce, to work for their masters and have a good work ethic, to be hard workers, to not have a hard, to not have a, a good work ethic, to not work hard, to be lazy to dishonor your boss, is to defile God. You're failing to to live out what the Bible teaches, to show the way that that God is to be honored. He says, if bonds work for another brother, another believing Christian brother or sister, it is even more so important because there's, there's a mutual bond and love. Paul is calling for godly conduct that elevates the name of Christ and generates praise for the gospel, both in the church and in the world what Kent Hughes writes. He is also subtly undermining any unfair or unkind behavior of believing masters by reminding Christian bondservants not to be slack in service or respect on the premise that they, the believing masters are merely brothers. A designation that simultaneously reminds masters to treat their servants as brothers in Christ. So I love the way you wrote that. Paul is calling for godly conduct that elevates the name of Christ and generates praise for the gospel both in the church and in the world. In other words, it's honoring of God when workplaces ask, "Where are the churched people? Where are the Christians? They are the best workers. They are the most honoring workers. I want them." That elevates the work of Christ and the praise of others to Jesus. So we have listed out these instructions, how the churches to relate to each other, then some specific groups of widows, elders and bondservants, and I think this is a beautiful vision that Paul has listed out here. What if the church related to one another as family? Not a, not a family that's marred and marked by, by sin and brokenness and the and lack of the Spirit, but a family that's been renewed, regenerated, made new by the Spirit, a family of grace, where older men have a fatherly affection for younger men and women and children in the church where older women have a care and nurturing and love for those younger in the church. Those who are younger have a deep respect and honor for those who are older in the faith. This kind of behavior, I think, this kind of conduct demonstrates, it reveals, and it adorns the gospel. It's because of Jesus. It shows the difference the good news of Jesus makes. It shows that Jesus is the one who brings about this kind of change. That Republicans, Democrats... Blacks and whites, old and young, young women and older men, older women and younger men, all the distinctions that we might have in our society that, that break us up, put us against each other, divide us into different groups. No, this is a group that loves each other as family because of what Jesus has done. The church can relate to one another as family, care for those in need, honor those in authority because this is what Jesus has done for us. Jesus didn't rebuke us. He didn't condemn us. He doesn't charge us. Jesus was condemned in our place on the cross. Jesus was charged for our sins. He took the punishment upon himself. He was charged with sins and with mistakes and rebellion. He was charged with sins that he didn't commit. And it was on the cross where he was cast out, where he was orphaned, his father removed him, that outcasts like you and me, orphans like you and me can be brought into the family. It's because of Jesus. It's because of Jesus on the cross that he became a kind of older brother who gave up his own life for us that we might be adopted into the family of God. And it's by sheer grace alone, not by anything that we've done. The church honors those in authority, cares for the poor, works hard because it is out of response to what Jesus has done for us. It is, in essence, grace is God providing the spiritual rescue that we could not provide for ourselves. That's what grace is. And this care for those who, are, who truly cannot provide for themselves demonstrates the principles of the gospel for both those in and outside of the world. This is a note in the Gospel Transformation Bible, it says, this care for those who are, can truly not provide for themselves demonstrates the principles of the gospel for both those in and outside of the church. This gospel testimony was further strengthened by the careful selection and enrollment of older widows to extend the caring ministries of the church. Such, such godliness radiates the gospel's light. Why should the church care for those who are in need and, and poor? Because that's what Jesus has done for us. Why should the church honor those in authority? Because that's what Jesus did to the Father. Why should the church work hard for the benefit of others? Because that's what Jesus has done for us. And to this we say, God, give us grace to continue to walk in faith with you, to be this kind of blessing. God, would you cultivate in our church this kind of relation to one another, that we would treat one another with honor and respect? as the family of God would. And when you see how kind and gracious Jesus has been towards you, when you experience more and more of his grace, when you share in it, you will want others to experience this same grace that you feel. Seen it happen, Seen it in my own life. When When we rest, when we believe, when we center, when we trust in this gospel, it does something. And it's doing something in our church. This is the kind of, Family that God is cultivating, I'm so encouraged by it. I think this is what's happening. It's awesome. My uh, there is a one of the pastors who uh, has mentored me. He has this little joke of you know, just because he says, he says his kids are the best, and said so just because I'm biased doesn't mean that I'm wrong, right? I have a similar feeling about about this church. I feel so blessed and honored. To be a part of it. And I pray that others would feel this same kind of welcome and grace that I feel and that we can treat each other like this and that God would give us creativity and opportunity to care for those in need in our community. There's exciting opportunities coming up with with Lighthouse Northwest. I'm excited about that. Opportunities to care for those who don't have other family to care for them. Opportunities to care for orphans and widows but this has been my prayer this week, that God would give us grace to encourage one another in this way towards this goal. Amen? Let's pray. Father, would you help us, would you give us grace to be a church of encouragement, to be a church of edification, to love one another as brothers and sisters regardless of ethnicity, social economic status, neighborhood, life stage, gender, age, that we would have a, a brotherly and sisterly, a familial affection that comes from being in the family of God. Father, would you give us insight and wisdom in how to care for those orphans and widows in our community? This is our heart. Would we be known as, as these widows were known for, for washing the feet of saints, for being people of hospitality, for being people who are devoted to good works? Jesus, we praise you that while we were yet sinning, you came and died for us. That as we are broken sinners, you invite us to come to you because you are gentle and lowly. You identify with us. You became sin. You know what we go through. And you didn't condemn us you welcomed us, Father. Help us to welcome each other as Jesus has welcomed us. Help those in our city and our community learn more about the welcome of Jesus because they know us. We give you the glory and the honor as as we see you move and work. As we are encouraged by the testimony of your saints, as we we're encouraged by the testimony of your grace and work in our life we give you all the honor and the praise and the glory. In Jesus name. Amen.